Hey again, everyone. This is David. Today, I have the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Jones. He's a professor of clinical pediatrics and a general pediatrician at the Pediatric and Adolescent Care Center. He also happens to be my preceptor at my continuity clinic. Dr. Jones has amassed several rules throughout his uh, time practicing, and I think a lot of them may come in useful when studying for the boards. We're going to be focusing mainly on primary care topics today, uh, but we also have some heme onc and uh, ID pearls that we've come across, or he's come across in his time. So, Dr. Jones, we really appreciate you sitting down with us. How are you doing today? Good. Thanks. Happy All to do this. Excellent. All right. Well, let's get right into it. Um, so we'll kind of start right at the beginning of life. I know that we have uh, we need to know how weight and OFC changes. Do you have any way to help us remember that? Uh, there are, uh, I, I tell the residents and staffing, there are a lot of two rules in pediatrics, and I try to simplify things since I tend to be uh, pretty simple. And uh, one of the rules that will get a lot of use uh, even in the emergency department and patients you see there is a rule that works for weight and OFC. It's weight in pounds and OFC in centimeters. And that rule is 222-111 and a half times six. And that's weight gain, OFC increase in the first year of life. You don't have to have a growth chart in front of you so you can guesstimate where a, a child would be uh, weight-wise and OFC-wise in the first year of life with that rule. All right, very good. That should help us a lot. The explanation for that is it's two pounds for the first three months, one pound for the next three, and a half a pound per month for the next six. And then two centimeters for the first three months, one centimeter for the next three months, and then a half a centimeter for the following six months for OFC. Is that correct? That is correct. Look, you did teach me something. Yes, yes. and it doesn't get you length, but you got two out of three growth parameters from that one rule. I think that's definitely helpful when we come across questions trying to figure out where kids, if they're in the right growth pattern, that definitely can be used. Yes. Now, that works for the routine, especially the 50th percentile. It does not work for the 28-week preemie. Ah. It's not... It's not going to work for all those very small uh, infants. Good to know. All right. Okay, if you're a little slow like me, you need this repeated. So the rule is 222-111 and a half times six. So two pounds for the first three months, that's 222. One pound for the next three months, 111. And a half a pound for each month for the next six months, so a half times six. Two 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 one 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 and a half times six. Well, moving on to uh, kind of looking at macrocephaly, hydrocephaly. Do you, is there any way we can differentiate the two of those? The uh, the rule, and when we're looking for head size, it helps you look at how the OFC increases. We see macrocephaly. A lot of kids have that. Overall, the most common reason for kids with a big head is parents with a big head. So I usually uh, turn to the parents and ask them if they have trouble buying hats. And they will usually answer, yeah, they don't wear hats because they can't find one that fits. And uh, that's one of the most common. Now, certainly, if it continues to grow, there is some uh, benign extra axial fluid, some of those kind of things, which may take imaging uh, to define. But uh, often it ends up just 
parents with big heads, kids with big heads. Do these kids need a big workup looking into why they have a big head? If they continue to grow pretty rapidly and even trying to follow that rule that we just talked about with head size or still pretty large fontanelle or full fontanelle, certainly those would uh, require some imaging. Okay. You guys, this is going to seem a little all over the place, but I promise you there is a method to our madness. We're working kind of stepwise through growth and development type stuff. So if you feel like you want to go back through, just rewind, listen to it again, and help uh, hone in. Remember some of these rules to help you on the boards. So moving on, we're going to uh, talk a little bit about speech. You know, sometimes we have our kids coming into clinic and parents think their speech is delayed. Dr. Jones, you have a rule two to help us remember normal speech? There are some things that will help with that. Uh, we do ASQs uh, to help us uh, judge how they're doing globally, developmentally, but uh, looking at speech uh, specifically at 12 months, we would expect them to have three to five words. And then by age two, the very minimum is 20 to 22 words, staying with the two rules. And usually at age two, they're able to put two words together. At age three, they put three words together, usually add pronouns at that point. Very good. That should be helpful. Keep those twos in the back of your mind, and that should help you when you're reading the question stem. Just we'll throw in a, a little vaccine stuff here just because it flows along with our rules of two. What is the minimum weight that we should give vaccines at? We usually look for uh, two kilos getting to roughly four pounds or so babies out of the NICU and following up we usually start those at two kilos. Excellent, excellent. Uh, another common thing that we see in primary care is when we start to look at blood pressure in kids. I know typically we start that at age three. We'll look at blood pressure. Is there any way to decide if they're in a normal range or high range of blood pressure? Yeah, a quick rule for that is two times their age plus 100 for the systolic. Two times age plus 100. There are great charts which list blood pressure based on height as a growth parameter. But if you're doing just a quick screen, are they less than the 95th percentile? That's usually going to be two times their age plus 100. So if we have a kid come into clinic and it's the first time they've had high blood pressure, should we diagnose them with high blood pressure? You know, we don't initially. Uh, often they're very excited about coming in the office and seeing us, and uh, so their blood pressure is up a little. We would tend to rescreen and follow them. Uh, we try to do it uh, outpatient, often uh, request that even at school they go see the school nurse have a blood pressure done weekly for three weeks, or if they don't have a nurse, we have them come back to the office, and we do just blood pressure screening, have them come in, see our nurse, do the blood pressure, and uh, get at least three uh, additional screenings for those. Perfect. All right. So we don't want to get too excited and just start labeling things. Not at an initial visit. No. All right. Very good. All right. I Sometimes we will pick up a kid, and they have a murmur, is there any way we can kind of help decide what type of murmur it is? When we hear them in infancy, especially in the first few months of life, there's always a deciding, is this significant? Uh, does it have significant pathology or not? But murmur is pretty common in the first few months of life. 
and it's another two rule so if you hear a murmur and you can hear that murmur in the axillary or posterior into the back it's usually one of two things when you hear that murmur it's a pda or it's a peripheral branch pulmonic stenosis pbps uh, both of those we can usually follow but that's the importance so don't just listen front turn them over, get a good listen, posterior axillary, and uh, in the back. So if you hear it in two locations, it's usually one of two things. Yeah, that would be good, yeah. All right. Axillary line or posterior, yeah. Good, good, all right. Uh, so now our kids are getting a little bit older, they're in daycare. Um, sometimes we have parents come in and say, my kid got kicked out of daycare Maybe this is the second time they got kicked out of daycare. Is there anything that you should start to think about with this situation? Yeah, I, I, when I get the kicked out of daycare, uh, the my antenna kind of goes up. It's unusual preschool daycare uh, for them to get kicked out. And having done this for a long time, often if they've been kicked out of a couple of daycares, uh, you can suspect that... Uh, there will be some continuing difficulties, often end up with an ADD diagnosis as they get older. Certainly a three-year-old, we wouldn't make that diagnosis in, but we would uh, certainly get them going uh, with counseling and uh, continue to evaluate that. Just something to think about if yes. you're getting this uh, a question stem that talks about a kid having trouble in daycare. It may raise your thought process on ADD. With the child that's been kicked out of daycare, yes, that's that's not real common. All right, very good. So continuing to get a little bit older, so we have our, you know, a eight-year-old girl that's coming. I actually had this the other day. It was a almost eight-year-old girl that came in with some right-sided chest pain, and it was actually due to her breast budding. So what kind of normal process and rule of two can we use to help us know the normal pubertal stages of a girl? Right. There are some uh, two rules related to development. Most of the time in uh, girls, if they have development that starts any time after age eight, that falls in the normal range. What parents usually have questions about is uh, when will that they start having periods or how much longer will they continue to grow as far as menstruation usually with girls a good landmark is when they buy their first bra they're going to remember that and parents are going to remember that and they will usually start menstruation within two years after that landmark and then they will continue to grow continue to grow for an additional two years so those are good two rules that you can use as far as menstruation. As far as male development, there's also a good two rule. First, a growth parameter going to Tanner stage two in males is testicular growth. So you want to guess what that two rule is? So if you can examine testicles and they are two centimeters or greater, they're Tanner two. And that works for the males. All right. Very good little bonus information I wasn't even prepared for. <laughs> All right. And this is, uh, again, one of those kind of out of left field sort of things in primary care. But 
say we have a child that's coming in with, uh, you notice maybe some pits or creases in the nails. Is there anything we should think about along that that you've come across? That's that's pretty common with psoriasis and even sometimes before they have a lot of skin changes. So you may see nail changes with uh, pits and creases that just seem to appear out of nowhere, but uh, should be thinking psoriasis. Good. Very good. All right, and uh, moving into something, again, very, very primary care that we take care of a lot of is asthma. I mean, quite often the question comes up in the primary care setting, should we start this patient on a controller medicine? How can we help differentiate between mild intermittent and mild persistent and know when we need to start those? So as you would guess, there are some two rules uh, associated with that, and often it's difficult to tease out. Uh, from parents how severe the asthma might be when you ask them how often they wheeze and they say only when they get sick and you say how often do they get sick and they say only when they have a cold and you say how often do they get a cold whenever they go to school and you say what was the question (laughs) (laughs) so I've uh, I've tried to focus on some uh, questions that have twos in them so uh, parents can help answer that and it's related to symptoms so I ask Do they cough more than two times a month at night? Or do they cough more than two times, have symptoms, cough more than two times a week during the day? So there's nighttime symptoms, daytime symptoms. Do they refill their inhaler more than two times in a year? Have they been admitted more than two times in the past year? admitted to hospital, or have they had several ED visits? I use four or five. There isn't any specific identification with that, but it would say if they've been in the ED that often they're not controlled. So breaking any one of those rules would say asthma not controlled, they should be on a controller medication. You don't have to break them all. Okay, that was my question is do we need to have all of those criteria, or do we just need one of those criteria to know that we need the next? Just one says you're not controlled, you should be on a controller medication. All right, very good. This is my fault, I didn't put this in uh, chronological order, but we'll, we'll go back a little bit to bedwetting, another common thing that we see in clinic. When is bedwetting abnormal? First step is to identify is this a primary or secondary in your recess bedwetting. Kids who are primary have never been dry for at least six months. So they will come in and say, never been toilet trained, have continued to have accidents, and not been dry for at least six months. Uh, Those who come in and say, oh, they've been dry for a year, at least six months or longer is secondary, secondary enuresis. And the importance for knowing that is it's a different approach. The most common cause for secondary enuresis is a psychological stimulus, something going on, some change either at school, at home, something different or developed. Now, we always think you need to roll out UTI, urinary tract infection. In fact, we had one last week that that was the history, secondary enuresis, some major psychological issues going on. And oh, by the way, you happen to have a UTI. So you don't want to miss those. So we always uh, check urines, but most common cause is uh, psychological. Then you flip back to primary, so they've never been dry for at least six months. Then we think about what things do we have uh, to treat. 
there after the behavioral approach, limiting fluids, reward system, reward charts, then we're really two approaches. And uh, one is either bedwetting alarms or medications. So those are the two big things to think about. Bedwetting alarms take really two things for them to be effective, staying with the two rules. Uh, one is you got to have a cooperative patient and you got to have a cooperative parent. What I mean by that is once the alarm goes off, child has to be able to awaken, get up, get out of bed, go to the toilet, and the parent has to be able to help them do that. So they have to be willing to get up and assist with that. If you don't have both those things, it's not going to work. All right, we're going to shift shift gears a little bit here now. Talk about some mainly heme and just a touch of onc in here, kind of in the primary care setting. So a lot of times we'll get our CBC and they'll have a microcytic anemia or an MCV less than 70. What should we be thinking about? Do you have any way for us to remember what the microcytic anemias are that we should be thinking about? With, uh, with kids, the one that you're going to see most commonly is a low MCV. And that's where you need to start thinking about what are the most common reasons. First importance is an MCV of 70 plus years of age is the lower limits of normal. Often the lab result that you get back has the adult listed normals, not for kids. So the normal MCV is 70 plus years of age. So most often we screen at 12 months, so the normal MCV would be 70, 71 for those kids. So that's first step. But really, if you get an MCV less than 70, you start thinking about the reasons. And there are five primary reasons. I wish it was a two, but it didn't work. There are five. (laughs) But a mnemonic to help you remember that is TAILS, T-A-I-L-S, those five things are what you need to think about in the differential. T is for thalassemia, that's alpha or beta trait, not disease, that's the trait. Uh, A is for anemia of chronic disease, but that's acutely. The longer it goes on, the more likely it is to be something like iron deficiency. So anemia of chronic disease early on. I is for iron, uh, iron deficiency. You always think about that, especially with the strong dietary history that would suggest iron missing. T-A-I-L is for lead, lead, and we routinely do that screening at 12 months too, so we'll do a CBC with a lead. And S is for sideroblastic anemia. That is so common, I have never seen one. (laughs) So most of the time you need to think tail, T-A-I-L. It will usually be one of those four things. And, uh, Commonly, it is thalassemia, alpha or beta trait, and we see as many of those patients diagnosed as we do iron deficiency. Now, with good feeding in the first year of life, either breast or formula feeding, it's not real common to see iron deficiency unless they have a cow's milk feeding history for a large portion in the first year of life. All right, so when you're looking at your question stem and you get your your hemoglobin and it's a little bit on the low side and then you've got your MCV less than 70 plus the age of the child, you can use tails to help you try and narrow down your selections and get an extra point on the boards. Thank you, Dr. Jones. Those, uh, those questions appear pretty commonly. So if the hemoglobin is low normal with an MCV that's low, 
the most common will be alpha or beta thal as a trait. And uh, the thing that will help you with that in screening is to look at the RDW and the RDW red cell distribution with with the thalassemia traits is usually in the normal range. Things like iron deficiency, which you're thinking about ruling out, their RDWs are usually close to 20, so 18 to 20 range. So if you have a normal RDW, hemoglobin that may be just a little low, and an MCV that's low, think alpha or beta thal. So there is a reason for us to look at the RDW after all. There is. They give you those things for free when you do the CBC. So, yeah, check out the RDW and uh, see where that fits. Now, so if we're looking at our, if we're thinking iron deficiency anemia and we want to check the iron stores, um, is there a test that will help us measure or, or get a better idea of what the iron stores are? As part of the screening for iron deficiency, we often think about iron and iron sats, percent sats. With kids, one of the difficulties is, is iron levels have a circadian rhythm. So they vary during the day, and they are notoriously off. So really, the best measurement of iron stores is ferritin. So we if we're doing screening for iron deficiency, we would just do a ferritin level. And when I was going through uh, your rules, I did notice something about von Willebrands. Is there a classic presentation or, you know, a common presentation that should make you think about von Willebrands in a kid? With kids, the most, uh, most commonly diagnosing von Willebrands is a chronic recurrent nosebleed. So we see a child who come in who comes in with nosebleeds, and most common overall diagnosis is yeah they pick rub scratch their nose, so they got dry nose and they pick that nose, and in spite of what parents believe, they do pick their nose when they sleep, so they pick their nose at night, wake up with blood on their pillow, and parents are sure there's something bad going on. Usually isn't, but if it's a chronic recurrent problem we think von Willebrand's disease. Often there is not a significant bleeding history in the family, but mother may have a significant menstrual history with heavy bleeding, lots of pads, so always screen moms and ask about her menstrual history. Always important to get the full history, including family history. It is important, yes. All right. So just kind of teasing some more diagnoses out, we have anemia on our CBC, and then we have an elevated MCHC. Is there anything that we should be thinking about with that? When you see that, the MCHC is another one of those free things you get on the CBC. But if you see the MCHC that's elevated, you should think spherocytosis. That happens with really any hemolytic-type process. It's just spherocytosis is pretty common. So you see that, think some hemolytic process going on. All right, sorry to disappoint you guys. We're going to save the onk stuff for another section. I think we are going to have some hemonk discussions soon, so look forward to those. But we're going to finish this section off with a little bit of primary care infectious disease topics. We're looking again at our CBC. We're getting our differential on that, and we noticed some eosinophilia. Is there a most common cause of eosinophilia in kids? Uh, for kids, it's we don't often see in it eosinophilia, but if you happen to see that on your CBC, it makes you go, huh. Often you think allergic, or there's some things going on 
in the history allergic, and that certainly could be. But with kids, very commonly, any viral infection will give you an eosinophilia. So thinking viral infection would be high on the list. I never think viral infection when I see a kid. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty uncommon. <laughs> All right. And uh, some other common things that we see in primary care is something like uh, pinworms. So do we need to just treat our patient with pinworms or do we need to treat everybody? What's, what should we do with these kids? Yeah, pinworms and they may present with itchy bottoms or the parents say not sleeping well and they may give you that history. One of the old standards is is that you would do a scotch tape test and look for the pinworms, but most of the time the parents can identify that. They will see them in the stool or I tell them to do the flashlight test. And the flashlight test is they go in a couple of hours after the child's been asleep uh, with the flashlight, spread their cheeks and get a look. Pinworms come out at night. So uh, they will come out at night and they move around a little bit and they can usually see them on the bottom, on the patient's bottom, and they don't need to do any scotch tape tests. And if that's the case, we would treat them. And actually there's a time that is supposed to be the most common that the pinworms come out. And that time is 11 p.m. <laughs> now the next question you're going to ask me is that Eastern Standard or Central Standard time? It's 11 p.m. wherever you live. The pinworms don't discriminate. They don't. They just, I don't know why that is, but that's uh, one of the pearls. Uh, so I tell parents to go in at 11 o'clock at night, spread the patient's cheeks and get a look with the flashlight. And if they can see them, we would treat them. The treatment uh, now that we have is albendazole. Previously, we had used mubendazole, which I think may be back on the market now, but uh, albendazole is the easiest to get. Question is, do we treat the family? Do you treat the entire family? My approach is yes, because they may have gotten it from the patient or the patient may have gotten it from someone in the family. So we just treat the entire family as far as trying to eradicate, get rid of the pinworms. And on the line of pinworms, what do we do with scabies? Uh, scabies. Scabies, there are a couple of pearls associated with that. Uh, scabies is one of the few infestations which will keep kids, even adults, from sleeping. So the question I ask them is, how are they sleeping, child or parent? And if they're up at night, not sleeping, come in, get the parents up, high on the list to scabies. Often kids don't have the classic in the fingers, in the webs of the fingers. But when I see a child and suspect that, I turn to the parents and say, let me see your hands. And uh, examine the parents, and often they may have infestation, and they really are not having a lot of symptoms. So, which would lead to, when you treat the child, we also treat the family. So we treat all of the family members. And the medication we use, the trade name is Elamite. Scabies is caused by a mite, burrows under the skin. Our goal is to eliminate the mite. Very, uh, very smart. Uh, that was a drug, catchy name. Yes, very smart. Elamite. Drug manufacturers, which is a uh, pyrethrin. It's about, I think it's 5% concentration but we use that to treat the entire family. 
I don't know which is my more dreaded chief complaint when I'm in clinic. Suspected scabies or lice. What are we going to do, or what do we do with our kids with lice? Uh, with head lice, it's also very itchy, but it usually doesn't keep them from uh, sleeping. And with treating uh, head lice, classic treatment has been over-the-counter medications, but there are, uh, I think, 25 states now that have resistant head lice. And one of Indiana's claim to fame is they're in that 25. So most of the over-the-counters will not work. So it takes a uh, prescription uh, medication to be able to treat them. That's terrifying. Not only do I have to worry about resistant staph, I have to worry about resistant lice. That is correct, at least for Indiana. And are we treating everyone in the family uh, that has lice, or are we only treating our patient? We tend, to, we tend to treat the family as well. Same kind of thing, especially if there are their kids in the family. They may not have a lot of symptoms. Even if they're asymptomatic? Even if they're asymptomatic. All right. Well, treat them all. Treat them all. Okay. Let's finish this up with uh, everybody's favorite. We have a persistent cough and runny nose. Maybe going on for 10 days, two weeks. Anything we should start to think about at that point? Yeah, when you get that, uh, the differential for that is thinking about things like allergies, asthma, even things like cough variant asthma. But if there isn't that kind of history, either in the patient or the family, very commonly in children out of the first year or two of life, when you get that kind of history, you should be thinking sinusitis. Sinusitis is a clinical diagnosis. It's not an x-ray or a CT diagnosis. It's a clinical diagnosis. And if you have those two things, cough, nasal symptoms of some kind, for two weeks, think sinusitis. And what are we treating our sinusitis with these days? Yeah, I usually respond to that with, what would you treat otitis with? And the bugs are exactly the same. Some, so, some high-dose amoxidase. High-dose amoxicillin would be a great place to start. I did read that there's maybe some resistance issues somewhere, so some people reach for augmentin. Do you think there's a difference, or is high-dose amox probably... I think high-dose amox is a good place to start. Certainly nothing wrong with augmentin and uh, doing that. But if you look at the bugs that are there, it's strep pneumo, H-flu, and moraxella, same things that are there for otitis. Excellent. Well, that's all I had prepared. Is there anything else you'd like to leave us with today? Uh, I think that covers quite a bit. Excellent. Well, I would suggest you guys rewind, go back through this, because there was a lot of knowledge just uh, dropped by the good Dr. Jones. We really appreciate you sitting down with us today, Dr. Jones. Happy to do it. Excellent. Thank you. Yep. Yeah.